Well, it's good to be here. Uh, you figured it out that I'm not Ian. And uh, not only do I not look like him, but I, I was nervous, to be honest, about this table. So on Tuesday nights when I preach, I use a music stand, and I got thinking, this is so weird, but I got thinking, like, I'm going to be at a table, and um, what if it's too tall? I actually thought that. Um, and it, it's not. I think this is good. It's got lots of space, so I'm, I'm feeling, feeling pretty good. Um, we are going to be in Psalm 66, so if you need a Bible today, put your hand up, and one of the ushers will get you a Bible. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Jamie Newman, and just six months ago, I was living in the Calgary area with my wife, Christina, and our four kids, uh, and I had a really great job in marketing, and then about six months ago in November, uh, last year, um, I walked away from that career, and we got in a car, and we drove out here, uh, where I now serve as uh, and lead our youth and young adults ministries. And so when Ian asked me to preach, he suggested I pick a topic related to something maybe God has been teaching me in my personal study or maybe something that's just been meaningful to me. And uh, my gut reaction was like, oh, where, where do I start? Like, it's, it's really incredible to just look back and see what God has been doing in my life recently. And I say that all to, to boast in him. But even looking back further to, to consider what he's done to just completely transform the trajectory of my life and, and prepared me to quite frankly, prepared my family and I to even just be standing here. It's, God is so good. And so I decided to go back about five or six years ago to a time when I actually wasn't sure how good God really was. I'd started a business that uh, wasn't moving the way that I wanted it to. Uh, it just wasn't being profitable. And so I decided to shut it down and return to full-time work. Uh, but I couldn't find a job and I'll save all the particular details for another time, but I was reminded, uh, recently I did my taxes, and it has a recap of like the last five years, and in 2018, um, I earned a whopping $13,000, uh, and the majority of that money came after finding a job in September, and I remember it very clearly. I started looking for a job in September 2017, I found one in September 2018, and in between that time, I basically earned nothing. And at that time, we had two kids. We had a $2,100 a month mortgage, uh, maxed out our lines of credit, maxed out our credit cards, had to ask for help from friends and family and our small group. We didn't know where groceries were going to come from the following week. We even got a little blue notice taped to our front door, which Christina had totally forgotten about until I was talking about it with her this week. But it was a notice saying, like, threatening to shut off the water if we didn't pay the water bill. And the irony was like two years prior to this moment, I felt like I was on top of the world. I was celebrating corporate sales success in Cancun, and now I felt like I was at rock bottom. The likelihood of bankruptcy was very high. I didn't know how I was gonna provide for my family. And, and what's cool is I often speak about this time in my life as the absolute best thing that's ever happened to me, which maybe sounds a little funny, but it's because God worked so mightily during this financial suffering, just bringing our family to our knees in prayer, bringing us into his word for encouragement and dependence on him. And so when I considered uh, this message today, I, I grabbed the Bible that I was using during this time from five, six years ago. I began to flip through it, and I came to Psalm 66, and it was just covered with like asterisks, stars, and underlines, 
And that was because this passage that we're looking at this afternoon was exactly what I needed to turn to over and over and over again as we suffered. It's a psalm that was um, perplexing to me, to be honest. It was difficult to read, uh, but it was a psalm that I just, I wanted it to be true so badly. I'm excited to preach it today because like it, it is true. I've actually, I've, I've lived I've lived it, and I can tell you with joy that I've seen God work through this psalm in my hardest days as a pathway through suffering and through affliction. And I really needed it because the question that I had was, what am I supposed to do? Everything was just like falling around all around me. I thought I was doing the right things over and over again, and it actually felt like God's hand was actually actively against me. What was I supposed to do? And some of you, you might be in a situation similar to that today where things are happening that are outside of your control. You're going through some sort of suffering or affliction today. Maybe it's financial like I was going through or maybe it's the health of a family member. Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's with your kids. Maybe it's a broken relationship. And James tells us to count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. And I know that there's different trials of various kinds in this room today. So, so like, how, do you, how do you walk through it then? Like what's, what's the pathway to get through it? How do I honor God through affliction? How do I reflect God? How do I be more like God when I'm suffering? Like what's the way forward? And the, the answer is found in Psalm 66. And so I've titled the message, A Godly Pathway Through Affliction. And in Psalm 66, um, the the psalmist, we don't know if it was David or not, but the psalmist uh, is is someone who has clearly faced affliction, which we'll see, probably worse than anything that I've faced, to be honest. And and he writes this psalm, and it's a song. So he he gives it to, to the choir master, and the intent of this, like the other psalms, is to be put on the lips of God's people in worship. So... Let's dig in to this pathway through affliction, and we're going to see five markers along that path that we, as believers, we ought to see in our life. This ought to be a pattern in our life, and so here's the first one. Passionately praise his glorious name. Let's read the first few verses of Psalm 66, starting in verse 1. It says, shout for joy to God all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Give to him glorious praise. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. And in light of my introduction, that sounds crazy, doesn't it? Like the starting point on the godly pathway through affliction begins with praise? Like it, it begins with shouting for joy and, and singing of his glorious name and, and declaring his awesome works? Like really? When, when things are hard, when, when I'm suffering, singing praise isn't really the first place that I want to start. But, but like why is that? What, why is it that when we're suffering, we don't immediately turn to praise and worship? It's because when we're suffering, I'm just like, well, but like, look around at my life. Everything's falling apart all, all around me. Aren't, aren't I supposed to praise and worship for the victory? It isn't praise what follows the deliverance? It's like our psalmist is, is saying here, don't miss this. 
our present circumstances don't dictate his worthiness of our praise. I'm going to say that again, but directly to you. Your circumstances don't dictate his worthiness of your praise. What you need when times are tough is first and foremost to get your eyes off of your present circumstances and onto the one who is always worthy of your praise. Like, don't you know who your God is? And, and don't, don't you love him? Like, listen, those who love themselves focus completely on themselves. But those who love God fix their eyes on him even when, especially when they're in hard times. I mean, consider Job. He lost everything. He lost all his children. And Job 1.20 says, Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground and worshipped. The godly pathway through affliction starts with eyes fixed on him, and he is glorious. So fix your eyes, like right now, fix your eyes on him. He is glorious, and the whole earth is invited to sing the glory of his name like we just all did. And his deeds, his works are awesome. And that word awesome, it has the connotation of something terrible. And, and to be honest, we probably use this word like way too flippantly, you know? Like someone's like, man, that burger was awesome. It's like, dude, you were just at McDonald's. How awesome could it possibly be? No, you want something awesome? The Rocky Mountains are awesome. They are massive. They are great. They are dangerous. They are awesome. And our God is awesome. And we can understand this with the next phrase. It says, so great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. Who is this God? He is almighty. He is all-powerful. He is holy. He is just. He is jealous. He is beautiful. He is awesome. And he is always victorious. And his enemies, they cower and they cringe before him. But his people, along with all creation, sings of his praise. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. And, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. He's awesome. Fix your eyes on him. So the question for each of us today in this first point is where are your eyes fixed today? Are you focused completely on your circumstances or are you focused on him? And the posture of your worship will tell you. The psalmist instructs us here on what this looks like and what it sounds like to passionately praise his glorious name. It looks like shouts of joy. And singing and declaring his awesome deeds, it's, it's all right here. And, and, and be encouraged, this is what we do as a church, isn't it? Like this is, this is biblical. Every week we, we come together and we raise our voices in praise to our God. And so the call here is to be fully engaged in the praise of his name. To be like completely consumed and filled with so much delight that you're overwhelmed and just praise just pours out. And it's not, not just singing, but it's shouting for joy. It's the idea of a, a victory cry, a, a battle cry of deliverance. Because of who our God is, his enemies, they come cringing to him. He's victorious. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. It's who he is. Some will bow joyfully and some will cower and bow reluctantly, but his name will be praised. And so we shout for joy. And do you know what that means? This one's tough. 
means you can shout in church. And that would be a cue to be like, amen. No one? <laughs> amen, all right, there. I know, it's, it's hard, right? Like, shouting's not just for sports teams and concerts and great performances. Like, I don't know, probably no one cares because no Toronto teams are really doing anything that exciting. But last night, the Celtics got a buzzer beater. Like, they, literally at the buzzer, they, the, the Celtics score the game winner, forcing game seven. And you can just imagine everyone's like, yes! And they're clapping and, and they're cheering. Or you watch a great performance and you stand at the end and you're like, yes, and you shout, how much more for our God? And I, I do have to say this, so I'm so encouraged being here each and every week. We've been here six months. Every single week it's the same. There are so many people that I see in this room fully engaged in worship. I mean, we've got different personalities, of course. Not everything looks the same. But like, you, you know when someone around you is passionately praising the name of God. And, and you know when you are passionately praising his glorious name. And the posture of your worship tells you where your eyes are fixed. So how was the posture of your worship 15 minutes ago? He's always faithful. He's always victorious. He's always delivering. And the godly pathway through affliction begins with passionately praising his glorious name. And then with our eyes fixed on him, we ought to regularly recount his awesome deeds. That's point two. Regularly recount his awesome deeds. Verse five, it says, come and see. I, I love that. Like, just come on, come on. Come and see what God has done. He's saying, like, don't look at your circumstances. You want something to look at? Come and see. I'll show you what to look at. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of men. He turned the sea into dry land. Do you remember the Red Sea? Do you remember the Exodus? Do you remember slavery to Egypt? Remember when Pharaoh's army was pursuing Israel and they faced the impassable waters of the Red Sea? And do you remember how he exercised his almighty power and split the sea in half and they walked through on dry land? And, and the psalmist continues, they passed through the river on foot. Do you remember the Jordan River? Remember how it separated Israel from the promised land? Remember the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant and they stepped into the water and when they did that, the water stopped and all of Israel passed on into the promised land on dry ground? And then the psalmist says something really, really fascinating. He says, there did we rejoice in him. On, on the shores of the Red Sea, on the shore of the Jordan River, there did we rejoice. There did we rejoice. Like, how can he say that? Centuries have passed since these events, and yet the psalmist is acting like he was there. Of course, this is imaginative, but at the same time, it's deeply profound. And in a way, he's saying, no, 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 I was there. Because what God did for them, he did for me, he did for us, because we are his people. The, the psalmist is saying to us, be like, come and see, come and be transported back to where God showed his faithfulness to you at the Red Sea and at the Jordan River. And, and today, for like all of us in, 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 the, in this room, God didn't just deliver Israel from Pharaoh. God didn't just deliver Israel into the promised land your faith is in Jesus Christ, God delivered you. Like his faithfulness to Israel was his faithfulness to his promise of the coming Messiah, who through his life, death, and resurrection would free his people from slavery to sin and who will bring us into eternal rest 
in the promised land. Like, this was for you. And verse 7 says that he rules by his might forever, and his eyes keep watch on the nations. Who is our God? He's powerful, he is sovereign, he's always watching, he's always caring. He's always faithful to fulfill his promise and preserve his people. Look back and see it. Look back and like feel the dry ground underneath your feet. See the ark of God and and, and God's presence stopping the water, preparing a way where there was no way. Look back and see the promised land before you. Like gaze at it. There did we rejoice in him. And there we will continue to rejoice in him as he leads us out of slavery of sin and into his kingdom where he will continue ruling by his mind forever. Can you see it? Like fix your eyes on him. Regularly recount his awesome deeds because he did them for you, for us. This is why we must be in God's word every day. This is why we must gather each week. This is why the lyrics of our worship music matters. This is why the content of our preaching and teaching matters. Is why we're given the ordinances of communion and, and, and baptism. We, we ought to be remembering and recounting his awesome deeds. So how regularly during the week are you recounting his awesome deeds? How often do you open up his word to remind yourself of what he's done for you, of, of his steadfast love and his faithfulness? If we're going to walk through a pathway of affliction... We need to remind ourselves of what God has done. Let me just encourage you to do something practical here. Many of you are, are taking notes. Some of you are like writing in a notebook, some in your Bibles. All good, totally good. Do more of that. Write down more. Mark your Bibles up. Write in a notebook if you're afraid to write in your Bible. That's okay. It's okay to write in your Bible. But write down so that you can have the opportunity to recount what God's done even in your own life. This is the reason I'm preaching this passage. I was able to go back and I was just like, man, this was the psalm that God wrecked me during. Of course, there's a warning here as well at the end of verse seven. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. When we regularly recount his awesome deeds, we're also reminded of who our God is in his holiness and in his justice. His great power causes his enemies to come cringing and cowering to him. So come and see. Come and see the waters of the Red Sea closing in on Pharaoh's army. Come and see across the Jordan River all the peoples devoted to destruction in the promised land. Who is this guy? He knows everything. He sees everything. He watches everything. Do not exalt yourself and rebel against this God. Don't do it. His awesome power, his awesome deeds, come and see them. Recognize who this God is and submit joyfully. Don't wait until you're cowering before his awesome power. Worship this God. And if you're suffering, don't think that you can make it without him. Don't think that you can just handle things your own way. Do not exalt yourself. How do I walk through affliction in a godly way? I passionately praise his glorious name. I regularly recount his awesome deeds and I boldly believe his refining purposes. Verse eight. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. For you, O God, have tested us 
You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. So right here, this is really the heart of the passage. Verses 8 to 12 here. The psalmist has already taken us back to the shores of the Red Sea and the Jordan River. And now he directs our attention really to the suffering that was all along the way. He recounts how God walked his people through the hardship, whether that's the oppression of slavery in Egypt or the wandering in the wilderness. And we get a picture here of his refining purposes. God here is credited not only with delivering his people, not only with preserving his people, but he's credited with sovereignly determining the trials and the tests and the suffering along the way. What we're seeing here is that it's a declaration of faith amidst trial because while the psalmist knows pain, he knows what it means to hurt. He knows what it means to face difficulty. He also knows it's God who sovereignly determines the burdens in our life in order to draw us closer to him, in order to purify us into his image, and to bring us to a place of abundance. Commentator J.A. Motyer, he says it this way, he has appointed us to life. He imposes purposeful sufferings for his people, which in which they are tested for quality and refined for purity. He appoints all our experiences, however dreadful. When life hems us in, when pressures mount, when people are atrociously cruel, when one threatening circumstance follows hard another on another, it is all his personal act. We are never elsewhere than in our Father's hand, the God of ultimate abundance. It was you who tested us. It was you who tried us. It was you who trapped us. It was you who gave us more than we could handle, a crushing burden. It was you who allowed us to be oppressed by men, yet it was you who brought us out to a place of abundance. And notice the purpose here. It isn't just to make it through the trial. This is not just about surviving and making it through. It's about abundance. And this is why the godly pathway through affliction, this is, this is why it starts with beholding God and recounting his works. Because when trials come, our faith is tested. And when we know who our God is, and when we know what he's done, then we know what he will do. And so we can trust him during that trial. And, and really, this is, this is a bold belief. I mean, suffering is one of the greatest obstacles to faith in God, is it not? How could a loving God allow suffering of his people, no less? Like, how, how could a good God, an all-powerful God, with, be okay with his people hurting and suffering and in affliction? This is also often our own obstacle to worship. How could a loving God allow suffering in my life? Like, like why is this happening to me? God, aren't you in control? God, God aren't, aren't you good? I remember personally struggling during our, our financial suffering and I was just questioning why did things just continue to go sideways one after another. And I, again, I actually felt like God's hand was against me. It was, it was bizarre. It was very, very difficult. I also remember conversations with a number of people, um, most of which were outside of the church questioning our faith. Things keep getting worse and worse. Why, why, why put your faith in God? Why, why go, go to church? What is that? 
What is that doing? Why, why do you keep getting more and more involved in church while things are going sideways? That's because our world, when things get tough, what do they say? They, the world says, fight. When things are hard, look, look inside yourself. You, you can get over it on your own. Just take control and fix it. And if you can't fix it, blame someone else. But like, what's, what's prayer gonna do? What, what's your church gonna do? But the psalmist knows. The, the psalmist knows and invites the whole congregation to sing this song and declare that God is sovereign in his refining purposes. It's all for the good of his people and the glory of his name. He's like a refiner who intentionally subjects the silver to intense heat and it causes the dross to come to the top so it can be removed so he can stare down and see the reflection of the refiner in the silver. This is Romans 8, 28 and 29. For those that love God, who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And that purpose is to be conformed into the image of his son. It's to reflect the refiner. And, and so, do you love God? If you're in hardship, God is doing something. He, he's working. He's refining. He's purifying you. He wants you to fall on your knees because he wants you to depend on him. He wants to lead you to a place of abundance and he needs you to cling to him. He's conforming you into the image of his son. So count it as joy and boldly believe it, his refining purposes. Boldly believe and cling to him. How do I do that though? I'm gonna give you three ways to boldly believe and cling to him. The first one is this, cling to him in his word. Open his word, memorize scripture, write, write it down, find his promises, pray the Psalms, pray his promises to him, and pray through the word with your family. And I'll just say that this one, like praying through God's word with your family is massive. Uh, it used to be super awkward for years, Christine and I, we just never prayed together. I, I don't know why, some of you are good at that, I wasn't. And I, I remember things were just like really, really hard. And I remember saying to Christine, like, we, got, we have to do this together. We have to open up God's word together. We need to read it together. We need to pray through it together. One of the most transformative things in our marriage when we did that. So husbands, grab your wife. Pray with her through the hardship. Wives, grab your husband. Pray through the hardship. Grab your whole family together. Fathers with, with your sons. Moms with your daughters. A whole family. Get them together and, and open up God's word and pray through it. Cling to him in his word. Number two, cling to him in his body, the church. You're here. Yes. Come every week. And come to praise and prayer nights. And, and come to men's and women's ministry and young adults ministry and all the ministries. If you're not a member here, declare this place your home and dig in. Serve. God designed the church as a place to find life in him, a place to bear one another's burdens together and serve one another together. So cling to him in his church. Suffering is not the time. It's so easy. Suffering is not the time to separate yourself from the body of Christ. It's the time to go all in. And three, cling to him in his counsel. Ask for help. Get wisdom. Get counsel. Are, are you suffering in your marriage? Get help. Sign up if you haven't to the marriage conference. If you're struggling in your parenting, get help. If you're suffering because of sin in your life, get help. Seek his counsel. Go to freedom groups. 
In your small group, take the mask off. Bear your burdens with your fellow members of your small group. Get counsel, get wisdom, get advice. Boldly believe in his refining purposes and cling to him because he will bring you to a place of abundance. And when he has delivered you, and remember, for those of you who have put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, he has delivered you from sin and death. That's really, really good news. And when he has delivered you, the psalmist gives us a model for how we ought to respond to our God who delivers. This is point four. Steadfastly surrender your whole life. Verse 13, I will come into your house with burnt offerings. I will perform my vows to you, that which my lips uttered and when my mouth, prom- and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Now you'll notice in these verses, the psalmist has transitioned from a corporate worship to personal Worship, which is helpful when we consider like the corporate body of Christ is comprised of individuals with a, a shared personal experience of what Jesus Christ has done in your life. And what we see here is not just an expression of personal worship, but an extravagant, costly, you might even say over the top expression of personal sacrifice. You see, burnt offerings were sacrifices that, as the name suggests, were burned, like completely consumed in fire. And so the idea is like, God, you can just have it all. I, I don't need any of it. This is, this is all for you. And, and the psalmist has saying, is saying, I vowed to bring not just a burnt offering, but burnt offerings, plural. Fattened animals, plural. Rams, plural. Bulls, plural. Goats, plural. The sacrifice of this sort would be ongoing and extremely costly. And, and it, it's a picture of the complete surrender of just everything the psalmist has. The psalmist says, when I was in trouble, I promised to give you everything. I made vows of what I would do when you brought me into your presence, and I meant what I said. Like, how often for us, when we are in trouble, do we make vows and promises? How many times have you made a commitment to God on your knees in prayer? And the psalmist says, I, I meant it. God, I've tasted and I've seen that you are good. I felt comfort in your promises. You've brought me to my knees in dependence on you and I've learned how you provide. I've seen how you bring affliction into my life and I understand that it's for my good and it's for the glory of your name. So God, you can just have it all. And this kind of takes us right back to the beginning, right? A a picture of praise and and, and worship, but there's more to worship than just singing and shouting and declaring his awesome deeds. Worship is about sacrifice and surrender. I, I like the bluntness of David Platt here. He says, if we sing and shout, but fail to lay our lives, lay down our lives in surrender before God, then we have not worshiped. It's about coming to the altar and laying our whole life down before him. And not just part of it, the whole thing completely consumed for him. And not just once, but over and over and over and over again, standing in his presence, standing in his presence. This is, this is the steadfastness, the ability to stand firm, the steadfastness James talks about in James 1, uh, 2 to 4, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, 
And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The psalmist says, you, you won't let my foot slip. My, my, my foot won't, I, I stand now steadfast and movable because in your presence, there's fullness of joy and I have every single thing I need. I lack nothing when I'm in your presence and I can stand by your grace. There's always more grace in your presence. There's always more mercy in your presence. There's always more comfort. There's always more wisdom. There's always more hope. There's always more victory. There's always more and more. I have everything I need so I can stand. And I I vowed to give you my life. And so I, I choose to dwell in your house forever and ever and surrender my life to you over and over and over again. And I mean it. That's worship, isn't it? Just think of Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. Laid my life down on the altar, it's over. I've died to myself, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his Son for me. So let's ask ourselves, what do I need to surrender today? What, what vows have I made, and how am I doing on those vows? We watched five baptisms last week, and there were two questions that uh, we ask when someone is baptized. The first question is, is Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior? Yes. Is it your desire to follow him all the days of your life? Yes. So how are you doing on those vows that for five of you you made a week ago in front of the congregation, reflecting a vow you made Who knows how long ago? How are you doing on vows you may have made four months ago, six months ago, five years ago, 20 years ago? How are you doing? To follow Jesus all the days of our life is to surrender everything to him. So how are you doing with that? How about your priorities this summer? Are your priorities this summer surrendered to him? Are the plans that you're making, are they pulling you away from the body of Christ or bringing you into the body of Christ? How about your entertainment? Have you surrendered your entertainment choices to him? The stuff we watch, the stuff we listen to. What about your possessions? Are they surrendered? How, how's your generosity? How's, how's your giving? How's your hospitality? Are, are, you, are your hands open? Or, or do you hold on to the things you have and don't share? What about your plans and your dreams and your pursuits? What are you pursuing? Have you surrendered your pursuits of the things of the world to pursue him instead? Our stuff, our time, our gifts, our days, our families, all on the altar. And the psalmist says, all my wealth, everything I have is yours day after day, on and on, because with you I lack nothing. And because you have delivered me, I give to you, not reluctantly, not legalistically, but I give to you in worship because now I know that you are everything and more. And this brings us to our final point on this godly pathway through affliction. Humbly herald your saving God. Verse 16. Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. If I cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened But truly, God has listened. 
He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. This final section is just layered with humility and personal testimony. You who fear God and his awesome power, come and hear what he's done. I I can't keep it to myself. You've got to hear what he's done. I cried to him. High praise was on my tongue. And I, I, I didn't cherish, I, I knew I couldn't cherish and hold on to my sin. I knew I couldn't have it in my heart or he wouldn't listen. And the thing about this, to, to cherish uh, something is to hold on to it. It's to care for it. It's to nourish it, to protect it. And it's a word often used uh, relationally and often used in the relationship between a husband and a wife. Like in Ephesians 5, in the same way that you nourish and cherish and care for your body, that's husbands, how you ought to care for your wife. And just uh, last Saturday, uh, you probably heard, uh, unless you're under a rock, Tim and Tamsin got married. Um, for those of you, there were so many people there. Yeah, you can clap. Yeah. <laughs> we can shout and we can clap, and uh, it's all for him. Um, I don't know if you noticed, but the word cherish is in the wedding vows. To love and to cherish. And so I just want you to picture for a moment a bride and a groom holding hands, cherishing one another. You can't be like that with your sin. You, you can't love and cherish your sin and expect God to bless you and to attend to the voice of your prayers because you belong to him. You are the bride of Christ. Your, your affections and your pursuits are to be for him. You need to cherish him. You, you, can't, you can't cling to him when you're clinging to the things of the world. It doesn't work that way. Cling to him, not the things of the world. James 4, 2 and 3 says, you do not have because you do not ask. You do not, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So we've got to examine ourselves for a, a moment. Is there a sin in your life that you are cherishing right now? Are your prayers for deliverance being hindered by your love for the things of the world? Examine your heart. It's so clear. The psalmist is telling us so clear that when we cry out to God with a pure heart, a heart that pursues him, he will listen. And and this is his testimony. He's heralding like, this is such good news. Truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. When I I let go of my sin and, and I turned in repentance and I cherished him, instead, he listened. When when I did, like, let this sink in. The almighty God of the universe, of awesome power, his enemies come cringing toward him. That God attended to the voice of my prayers. He he didn't just listen, he attended to me. This is my saving God. This is good news. Come and hear what he's done for my soul. I was afflicted, I was crushed, I was broken, I was in distress. But I repented and I worshiped and I cried out to him with with a pure heart only because he took my sin. And he attended to the voice of my prayer. And what he's done for me, he can do for you. 
He's shown me his steadfast love. And that steadfast love was shown in preserving his people. So the Messiah could come. And the Messiah did come. Jesus Christ came. He lived a perfect life. And he suffered. And he died in our place. He took the punishment for sin that we deserved. And he rose again three days later, defeating sin and death. And this is the ultimate deliverance from the ultimate affliction. I was crushed under the burden of my sin. But when I cried out to him, he took the burden off my back and put it on his and suffered in my place so that I could be raised and I could stand with him in his abundant grace, free from slavery to sin and walking with my God toward an eternity with him in his presence. Come what may, my hope's in him. So I will passionately Praise the glorious name of Jesus. I will recount the awesome deeds of Jesus Christ. I will boldly believe that in my suffering, my suffering is conforming me into the image of Jesus Christ so that I can magnify and exalt his name. And I will steadfastly surrender my whole life to Jesus Christ because he suffered in my place. He gave his life for me in sacrifice. I will humbly herald my Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm out of water, but we're almost done. <laughs> I mentioned earlier uh, that when our family was hurting financially, I read this psalm and I just wanted it to be true. You see, when you're in trouble, one of the hardest parts is just not knowing how or when it's going to end. Uh, I, I didn't know what God was doing. I didn't know what he had in store for our family five, six years ago. And I wasn't promised salvation from my finances, and, and, that's, and that's key. But, but that's part... Part of the hard part of suffering is sometimes things fall apart all around us, but they don't actually go back together, at least not the way that that we want them to. And this psalm is still true. Like his faithfulness doesn't end, even if it all falls down. Like deliverance is always coming for those who put their faith in him. There is a place coming of unending joy and peace and rest in the presence of a loving Savior who will wipe every tear from your eye. And for me personally, God did bring us out of our financial difficulty. We didn't go bankrupt. Um, we're actually completely debt-free, praise God. We don't deserve that. But the true deliverance for us was coming to the realization that it didn't matter what happened financially. And I, I remember that moment when I was just like, it, it, it doesn't matter. Your promises aren't about my finances. Your promises are about the fullness of my joy in you. And that truth, the truth of this psalm is what I needed. It's what I still need today. Like, listen, his glory and my good are inevitable. His victory and my deliverance are inevitable because of my faith in Jesus Christ. And for that reason, I will passionately praise him. And I invite you to passionately praise him as we close with a massive song. This is our saving God. Like, come and see, come and hear what God has done. The godly pathway through affliction starts right now. So let's praise his glorious name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I I thank you so much for Psalm 66. I thank you for who you are. I, I thank you for what you did on the cross. I thank you for sending your son to suffer and be afflicted in my place. I thank you for the unbearable weight of sin and and the crushing burden that was put on my back. God, I thank you for the crushing burden you put on so many people's backs in here that caused them to cry out to you. 
I thank you for your grace and, and mercy. I thank you for the trials that you bring into the lives of your people and the hardships that bring glory to your name and conform us into the image of your son so that we might rejoice and magnify the name of Christ to the whole world because he is victorious and he has delivered and he will deliver us. And so I God ask that you just continue using the suffering that is in this room right now to bring your people to a greater realization of who you are and a greater joy in you. I ask you to do that because you promised to do that. And I ask that you'd fill us with your joy right now, that you'd fill us up in awe and in gratitude and in testimony that we would see clearly what you've done and that our lives would reflect the refiner and magnify your name, that we would just lay it down all before you over and over and over again and humbly herald to the whole world, this is our saving God. You are our saving God and you attend to the voice of my prayer. To your name be the glory, God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.